Hi everyone, it's Ed Clancy here. Welcome to the Pursuit Line podcast. We're going to be talking about everything high performance. We've got some really interesting guests. We're going to be speaking to them about what's drove them to success, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Hope you enjoy. Hi everyone and welcome to the Pursuit Line podcast. Joined as always by Mr. Ed Clancy, OB. How the devil are you, mate? I'm good, thanks, Phil. Are you all right? Yeah, my head's a little bit scrambled. I'm not going to lie to you. What a guest we've got in store tonight. And it's almost like I don't know where to start. I don't know what you're feeling or thinking about this, Bob. Yeah, normally when you meet a Paralympic or Olympic gold medalist, that's the big selling point, isn't it? You know, and it's pretty unusual to meet a fella whose gold medal kind of pales in insignificance compared to like, the other achievements he's got. The stories he'll have. The things he's gone through and come back from, you know, that was even before he got his gold medal. I know he's been under the knife a few more times since, and what a story, what a guy. He never gives up, always positive, so humble as well. You know, the occasions I've met him, you know, asking me how I am. The little story I was going to share, you know, when he got online about after my operation, I had a little back surgery. You know, I had a little bit of, I think what's known in medical terms as drop foot or foot drop, you know, yeah, lost yeah. motor function in my right leg and, how scary was that? I had a big sob story. I have a big sob story, as you know, that I tell it. How difficult it was to sort of get out of bed and sort of crawling across your living room floor and things like that. And, you know, it took a while for me to get full mobility and a very small part of my body and the effect that had on me physically and mentally as well. But next level, this guy. Honestly, yeah. mate, just unreal. You know, talk about perspective and things like that. It's just mind-blowing. It's really quite an honor to have this fella coming on to life. Yeah, I think he's not just a hero of mine, but he's a hero of everyone. He's like a mythical character within the Great Britain cycling team now. I think if he's not your hero, he soon will be if you're listening oh. to this podcast, you know, and I'd encourage everybody that, you know, if you haven't before, just jump onto Google and stick his name in, Dave Smith, MBE. That's yeah. what my head was hurting, I think. I was doing a little bit of research, and I was like, where do you start the conversation with this? And Yeah, yeah anyone wants to check out, I had a little look at his website earlier. I followed him on social media for a long time, but he's got a few of his best stories and, you know, his best edits on his website. There's a few quality videos there that are on YouTube. And my goodness, what a fella. It's just unreal. Yeah. His social media is good as well as Instagram as well. I know that he's not a massive fan of it. Yeah, get across to him, Dave Smith, MBE on Instagram. He puts daily videos up. And if you're having a slow and lazy start of the day, he's going to give you a kick up the arse, won't he? Absolutely, yeah. He's got some absolute pearls of wisdom there. And some amazing quotes. He's good on LinkedIn as well. He's the same there. He is good on social media. It's funny, he started one of his last videos with, I'm not very good at this, and went on to have a brilliant 90 seconds of pure inspiration. Yeah, he's definitely worth a follow. Brilliant. So we get on with it? Let's go, yeah. Dave Smith, MBA, welcome to the Pursuit Line podcast. How are you doing today, buddy? Very well, guys. I always make a habit now when people ask how you're doing. It's definitely a British thing or certainly a Scottish thing. People go, I'm not too bad. And I think that's a really mindset shift we need to make to actually embrace maybe our American friends a little bit more and be like, yeah, I'm really good. Yeah, good on you. It's a British thing. Fair to Midland. Could be worse. Fresh from a British cycling board meeting. You couldn't be happier, mate. You can't top that. (laughs) Exactly. No, I do feel fresh. I, what's killing me more than anything else, it's 34 degrees outside in blue skies and I'm sat in a hotel room. Oh, man. Where are you then, Dave? I'm in Jamaica, working on my rehabilitation, physically, mentally. I come here in the winters to sort of get away from the cold, wet of the UK, eat fresh foods from the ground, from the trees, swim in the sea. And my first philosophy when I came here was to disconnect, to reconnect. 
I was kind of how I framed it. And I felt like I was living too much in my mind, chasing goals that maybe society had set on me and the pressures and then living from scan to scan, and spinal injuries. It was all just a little bit overwhelming. And I think I got to the point where something was going to break. And at that point, I sort of looked inside myself and said, you know what, you need to get away and sort of try and connect. And I was fortunate to be in a position I could do that. I understand that not most people can just get up and leave and go and live with a Rasta for six months, but I've been quite fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, I told you this was going to be good, Phil. What a guy. Fair play. So that little bit there already, Dave, you're saying about that disconnect and reconnect. I think it's a massive challenge for people right now because take just COVID, for example, the last two years. A lot of people have just been in their own homes, working from home, and they haven't been getting that engagement with other people. And the variety of people that you get, you get that stimulus and that stimulation. I also think there's a bit around the connecting with nature again. And if I remember the first lockdown in the UK, people started getting out on bikes and started walking. And I was like, brilliant. We've got a, almost like a call to action here to get everybody outdoors, you know, off the settees and get moving. How was COVID and the lockdown periods and that for you? Has that played a part in the decision you've had? Not really, to be honest. In many ways, my life in COVID has been paralysed because one day you're sort of going around your life, everything seems normal, and then the next day you're told by a higher power that you can't do certain things. In your brain and your conscious thought, you're like, I want to do these things. I want to go out, see friends. I want to go to parties. I want to chase goals, whether that's in sport or in business or relationships. All of a sudden, everyone's life was just turned upside down. And I'd already experienced that with paralysis. When I went into surgery in 2016, I remember riding on the velodrome up in Manchester and I was fine. I had no symptoms. You know, everyone was focused on going to world championships and, and the games in Rio. And I walked into a hospital thinking, well, this is going to be a pretty routine surgery. I woke up and never walked again. And that was seven years ago now. And for the whole of 2016, I spent in hospital. I spent eight weeks lying in a bed, looking at the roof in a wheelchair. The highlight of my day was when I would have a bed bath. You know, a successful day was basically not pooing the bed. Or actually, a successful day at the start was actually being able to have a bowel movement. My life was really turned upside down. And I wanted to go outside. I didn't even breathe fresh air. So I was in isolation in a little hospital bed in an extreme high-pressure environment of people dying next to me, people being told they had six months to live in the bed opposite me, all this going on around me for the whole year. And then I eventually was transferred to a spinal cord hospital where you're then dealing with 150 spinal cord patients who had woke up one morning like you did today, and all of a sudden they're paralyzed. And what I started to realize for me was that the person we spend most time with is ourselves in our own mind having that own conversation. And we're either living in the past or a future and we don't know what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. And that was a big learning curve for me in the spinal cord hospital because no one knew they were going to have a spinal cord injury. It's just something that happened, a freak accident. And a lot of the accidents potentially happened because people weren't in the present moment. They were living somewhere else, not conscious. And then, oh, bang, something's happened. I found myself in hospital. So in 2016, I experienced those emotions. I went through the Kruberov stages of grief, of denial, frustration, anger, depression, suicide thoughts and then eventually i had some form of acceptance and found purpose and came out the other end so when COVID came along for me i was like i recognize this this is actually quite familiar to me and i know how to manage this i've got the coping tools it's easy to say on hindsight where we went wrong but i think the language around it was an isolation lockdown all this was very negative language and rather than focusing on people's well-being and what we can do it was like, well, you can't do these things. And it was the language of can't do in hospital that pushed me to almost suicide. 
because it was like, you'll never walk again. You're never going to do this again. You can't do this. Ryan said, well, you know what? Okay, it's a pretty shit situation you're in here. You've just pooed yourself in the bed, but actually there's all these other things you can do. So when I came to COVID, I was like, well, okay, I can't do those things, but let's focus on what I can do. And that's a philosophy with spinal cord injury. You learn very quickly to focus, okay, before the injury, there may be 10,000 things you could do and only 1,000 after the injury. If you spend the rest of your life focusing on those 9,000 things, then you're not going to be a happy person. So you really need to focus on, okay, what's my character strengths? What are my guiding principles? What's my philosophy? And how do I apply that daily? And in many ways, that is also a luxury because if you're trying to put food in your table and a roof over your head, sleep hygiene is a luxury. Writing your philosophy and being mindful and meditating is a luxury. You know, I think that's the danger with a lot of the gurus that are saying, you know, you write a gratitude journal every day. But if you're in the real shit, a gratitude journal doesn't always work. And I think you've got to find out what works for you. And so COVID for me was actually, I understand with a lot of compassion for people that it was a very difficult time. It still is. But for me, I kind of already experienced that isolation. Dave, I'm not going to lie to you. Before we come on air, I said to Ed, I've got a headache because I've already got so many questions for Dave. And I'll be honest, you're not helping me, mate. You're not helping me. <laughs> I'm curious about so many things. I want to come back to your coping strategies, basically. I want to talk to you about, is that something you've always had? But before that, there might be some people listening to this podcast that maybe have not stuck you into Google or have not had a little look at you. And I know, Ed, you crossed paths in terms of your back injuries, et cetera, two years ago now. Let's go to Dave first. Dave, yeah. could you just give us a brief overview of well, your life, really? Because I know that it's fascinating. Yeah, I guess for me, I just loved sport. And it was never about trying to win Olympic medals or national teams. It was purely just the love of moving my body. I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland, surrounded by phenomenal athletes. And, you know, it was just about getting outdoors. We didn't have much to do. You know, you grew up in the mountains with a couple of fields. So we didn't have nightclubs and all these distractions. So you just kind of moved your body. That was riding your bike skiing in the winters, windsurfing, water skiing in the summers. And, you know, I was a pretty active child. I wouldn't say I was very academic. I couldn't sit in a classroom when the mountains were out the window. And all I wanted to do was go up skiing. I didn't want to listen to classical mythology about Greek lords and gods. I wanted to go and ski. And I fell in love with just moving my body. I guess my dream was to go to the Air Force. I wanted to go as a PGI parachute instructor or in the search and rescue teams. That didn't really come to fruition. And I've always been a great believer that if one door shuts, there's always another one opens if you have that sort of growth mindset. I know there's a genetic factor to depression that plays a huge part in athletes and in the general community. I guess I'm very fortunate I don't have that genetic element, but I always liken the fact that sport gave me the tools to deal with cancer and paralysis and cancer and paralysis taught me how to live. And one of the sports that really taught me how to live was karate. I did karate from the age of seven until about the age of 18. I was lucky enough to go and fight in world championships in Japan, South Africa, Russia. It taught me respect. It taught me self-regulation, self-awareness. It taught me resilience. You know, I trained in a pretty tough dojo in Aberdeen. And, you know, it was a weekly occurrence that you'd be punched pretty much full force in the face. And you'd have to pick yourself up off the mat and go again. So there's lessons there you learn as a young 15-year-old that you don't actually know you're learning. They're very subconscious, which I think at that age, sport is great at teaching you those character strengths. And then karate grew into a love of the Olympics. I spent some time running athletics. I won a couple of sort of district titles in the 400 meters. That then went on to being a brake man in the British bobsleigh team on and off for three or four seasons. And then that led to a short time in British skiing, working on the Olympic program. 
And I actually worked with Dave Ryden, who created sport and history at the weekend by winning the first ever Slalom World Cup in Kitzbühel. And I remember being in Kitzbühel with Alan Baxter and Dave as well as a youngster. And that is a phenomenal event. And it's a shame that COVID kind of crushed the spectator side of things. But, you know, you have 80,000, 90,000 people at Kitzbühel watching these races. And I was very fortunate to have grown up in Aviemore. I knew the ski team and I got offered this job on the Olympic program and the development team to travel with the team. And it was a great opportunity to see it from the other side, not just as an athlete, but then going on to the coaching side and working with guys. And I think it probably just came a little bit too soon for me. I probably didn't have the psychological toolkit to really appreciate what that opportunity was. But to sit and watch Dave do that at the weekend was probably one of the proudest moments I've had in sport. And then from the time in the ski team, that's where I was made aware that I had, I guess, some skeletal problems that qualified me for Paralympic sport. And that's the first time Paralympic sport had ever really been on my radar. A few months later, I was living in Caversham, rolling with the British team. And I guess from there, I was like, well, this seems like a pretty straightforward path. I maybe should have done this 20 years ago rather than doing all these different sports. And everything was going great. And two years onto the team was when I was first diagnosed with the tumor. And four years on the British Rowan team was a mix of emotions of my first diagnoses, a couple of world titles that resulted in a gold medal in London. But ultimately, I didn't love the sport enough to hang around. And I'm not just saying this because of the present company we're in. But when I jumped in two wheels, I fell in love with that feeling. And that was unlike probably any sport I'd done. This is something special. And unfortunately, the two races I had, one was with a tumor and one was on the bike. And I would never say one won or one lost, but certainly I never really got a shot at the cherry in cycling because I spent most of the time in hospital fighting for my life. Just to rewind a little bit, Dave, you casually dropped in your Olympic gold medal from 2012 there. But... So it was two years prior to that that you had your first surgery, is that correct? Yeah, so I had come back off the of World Championships and as you know, Ed, you come off the highs of the World Championships, then the refocus starts again and everything then becomes about the games and it was a home game, so it was a pretty special thing for any athlete to be focused on. But to wake up in a hospital bed paralyzed from the neck down two years out from those games wasn't really the ideal plan and in preparation for performance. No, I mean, usually at that point, you're at the cutting edge of team selection, aren't you? Trying to pencil your yeah. name on the start line. That's just unbelievable, David. Yeah, because I lost my seat in the boat at that point. You know, as you all know, sport doesn't wait for you. It's constantly moving and it's constantly in a state of fluctuation. So as soon as you drop off your performance, there's somebody else there waiting to take it. I remember coming around from surgery thinking, okay, what can I do to get in this boat in London? And the only thing I could really move at that time was my right hand. And I thought, well, let's just start with the visualization work. Let's start with training the mind. This is yeah. what I can control and what I know to do. So let's yeah. just go to that. And I don't know what your experience was when you had your back surgery, because you would have gone through a very similar thing. There's something I talk about and I'm almost embarrassed to tell my story at this point in time, but I'll tell it anyway. But this is almost exactly what I did, you know, in 2015, you know, before I go on to how I dealt with it, I just want to recite a little conversation that we had that you probably won't even remember. And the timing of it was quite key at the time. And looking back on that conversation now, even more so, I had my L5S1 little micro dissectomy disc surgery on my back on the 2nd of December, 2015. Now, by the end of December, I'd felt sorry for myself for three or four weeks. I'd sort of staggered into my velodrome, laid down in the back of a transit van. I've got a big sob story. Go see Hannah the physio for the first time. 
And then I bump into you outside the gym, opposite the old mechanics place. I obviously heard who, who you were, and Mark Cavendish, and just always going on about you. But that's all I really knew about you at the time. And then you asked me, you said, how are you doing, Ed? I heard you had some back surgery. And I was like, oh, yeah, Dave, it's been horrible, mate. I've been lying on my back, and I've been staggering around and crawling around my living room. And I proceeded to show you the tiny little one-inch scar at the bottom of my back. Yeah, and no, I was amazed by how much care and concern you had, particularly when you rotated around 180 degrees and showed me your scar. And I was like, oh. And then you continued to tell me the story of your comeback, you know, which had been prior to 2012 at that point. And I was like, wow, this guy must think I'm an absolute clown. You never said that at the time. I remember that conversation very well, and I still remember the scar. And I guess on this scale of sympathy, pity, empathy, and compassion, and, you know, I think empathy is like, well, I'm there with you, but compassion is really like, I am there with you. Like, I walked those steps. I know what would have gone through your mind. And with any back surgery, there's risk. And I'm sure you were aware of the risk, but I wouldn't have said that at the time to you that, you know, if they had pinched the nerve or pinched the cord, you would have been in a wheelchair the rest of your life. I certainly wouldn't want to have said that to you at the time, but I always remember when I do speak to people, I try not to freak them out because a lot of my symptoms increased bladder movement, a little bit sore back. And I remember sitting with a few friends before and one of their wives was like, I've got a really sore wrist. And I said, well, that was one of my symptoms. Everyone <laughs> starts freaking out. So I do remember the conversation and, you know, there's a big thing about identity. And when you're an athlete, you identify as being this strong, powerful guy. You, know, you were like one of the best zoo riders in the world. And all of a sudden you're in a hospital gown and it kind of doesn't really matter, you know, because you've been stripped of that identity. I know what that feels like. And then to give up that power to go under the anesthetic with that not knowing what's going to happen. You come around, you're like, okay, I can move. But then you go through all those initial hours and weeks and months. I know what that's like. So when you were telling me, I was like, I'm kind of there with you. And I know in some form of what you're going to experience with your emotions going forward. And actually, I'd just been diagnosed again yeah. before that conversation. So I was facing another surgery. So you kind of gave me a bit of strength. because, like, well, okay, here's another person that can join the club of back surgeries because I'm about to go and have another one. Yeah, this is the bit that you probably didn't let on at the time, which is the bit I was alluding to. So when we had that conversation, Dave, that had been around the point in time where you had made the decision to go and try and do the Rio Olympics. I don't know if you knew it was going to be inevitable at that point in time when we had that very conversation, but essentially there was a tumour there again. And yeah. if at all possible, you were going to put it off till after the Games. Yeah. You've just spoke about your love of sport and how you grew up with it and that to me is something that I can't relate to. I had my first surgery in 2010. I got out of hospital. I had a blood clot. I was rushed back into the hospital to have a life-saving surgery. I almost died in the car to the way to the hospital in 2010. And then I was diagnosed again in late 2013 after only a sort of a year on the bike. In 2014, I remember doing a handful of time trials in Scotland to then go and have another surgery in 2014 where they cut me down the back of the neck. Six months after that surgery, I remember going to Vaughan 2 and cycling up it three times in one day, which I think now in hindsight was a bit mad. But <laughs> seven months after that surgery, I was back racing for Britain again in Italy. And I thought, right, that's me had three surgeries. I can't have another one. And then in September 2015, they told me that the tumor's grown again, but these tumors are quite slow growing. And they were like, let's just monitor it. Let's just watch it and see what happens. So I went into the end of 2015 into 2016 with this huge uncertainty. But what was more frustrating than anything else, and I understand this now, I really struggled to live in the moment. 
because there was two things happening. Everyone was focused on the games. So everyone was already living at the games and not in the moment and just really enjoying the process of riding your bike and just loving every session because everyone was so stressed about selection, which for them was like really starting to frustrate me because I was thinking, well, my tumor might be growing, it might not be growing. So inside my head was like the worst radio station in the world that I couldn't turn the volume down. Then I started to be like, well, I'm probably not going to get selected anyway. And then I'm like, well, I might die or I might not die. I might be paralyzed completely from the neck down. So I just kind of want to ride my bike. And I took myself off to Mallorca on my own and just stayed in Mallorca on my own through Christmas and New Year. I rode every day. The great thing when you're on your bike, you drop into a flow state and I couldn't think. But anytime I was off the bike, that little voice was always like, you're going to die. You're going to die. Your tumor's coming back. And I just couldn't stop it. And then thankfully the guys and the team arrived. And then I was rooming with guys and chatting away. And that distracted from that voice. And then I remember coming back to the UK. I was doing a few sessions at the Velodrome. And I remember actually because Mark was back training for real. And I remember riding, riding, sitting on Cavendish's wheel thinking, yeah, this is pretty cool. This is pretty special. And that was actually the last time I rode a bike with all my limbs because it was a week after that I walked back into the hospital and I guess the real challenge happened, which has now resulted in me being paralyzed for seven years. And the hardest thing through all of this is just what you said was to having to let go of the love of sport, having to let that go. Yeah. Because that was killing me, trying to hold on as hard as I could. Yeah. I never really found stillness or contentment in my mind until I basically said, okay, I need to let this go. Understood. When we were athletes, mm. the definition of success was whatever rank you pulled in the race, right? Gold, silver, bronze, yeah. DNF, and so on. Has everything that's happened changed how you define success? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's aligned with my values about making the start line. A big one for me is not just turning up, but actually showing up every day to life. And I also started to think, okay, what is real success? Is it winning medals because a greater body tell us that that is what success is? Of course, we all want to win. You know, that's why we're athletes. That's why we're going, we attack life. We show up every day because we want to win in life. Is winning the same as success? And for me, success now is just inner peace in my mind. Just a level of contentment and stillness in my mind that I'm content, that I live by my values, I know my philosophy, I know my character strengths, I know that I showed up every day and gave it my best. And there was times you won, there was times you didn't win. But for me, I've managed to disassociate winning with success. And actually the success is just having this management of this nonstop radio in my mind. When I am the cancer and spinal cord injury taught me how to live, that's the lesson I learned from that. And I think it's a very expensive lesson to learn. I don't think you have to go through those extremes to learn that lesson. But there is a lot of people out there who say that to become fully conscious, you actually have to go through a level of suffering for you to step into that yeah. mindset. You know, unfortunately, that maybe is true in the grand scheme of things. I can't remember if it was an Instagram post or a LinkedIn post. And it was a Viktor Frankl thing. And you listed three points at the bottom. I don't want to recite it and get it wrong. It was something yeah. along the lines of acceptance of where you're at. Number two, working out what your values and your philosophy is for life. The third point, sort of adapting to that environment. Finding meaning. And I read that book in hospital. Because when you're lying in hospital and you're paralyzed, you know, from the neck down, when I woke up in ICU, I knew that something had gone drastically wrong in the surgery. It was a 10-hour surgery. I woke up and I couldn't feel my legs at all. 
as I lay in the ICU, I started to think, right, what's my goals? What's the big goal? And I was like, right, I want to make the team again. And I want to cycle the Grand Alpes, which is Geneva to Monaco. And the ICU doctor was a cyclist. So he's like, I love this. So he would come every day and chat. But I obviously knew that was a far cry away when you're lying paralyzed in a hospital bed. But I hadn't fully, really understood what happened to me at that point. But as the realization came to what happened to me, and I was like, whoa, okay, this is greater than any other surgery. That's when somebody gave me Victor Frankl's book and said, look, read man's search for meaning and yeah. start to discover what your why is and the level of acceptance around suffering. And especially being in that environment, you've gone from a high performance environment where everyone's focused about hitting power outputs and targets to an environment where people are dying. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, you start to question everything. You start to question what's the point and all these things. So that was a really great book to read at that time. And it sparked my cognitive curiosity thing. I want to delve deeper into this because I think this is something that's going to not just get me through now, but actually is going to help me live some form of fulfilling life in this new situation. And in hospital, it was kind of easy because you have goals in hospital. The goal is to stop peeing the bed, stop pooing the bed, have a shower, learn to stand up, learn to walk. The biggest challenge was going from hospital back into society because you enter society now classified as a C2 tetraplegic, basically paralyzed completely down one side of my body. And that's a whole different game. And that's where knowing my why and you can withstand anyhow, that became quite a deep running guiding principle for me to be able just to kind of accept that I'm going to spend the rest of my life paralyzed. You go on a very dark, I say dark journey, it's not always dark, it's actually a very revealing journey. And the paradox of it is that I've probably become more consciously aware that I'm alive by facing my own death. And when you're growing up as an athlete, you never think you're going to die. You think you're this invincible guy who's smashing all these targets. It's all about the race and all about the competition. But the closer you are to death, the more you are actually of being alive. And the most I felt alive was sitting on an anesthetic table, not on the bike. Because sitting on the anesthetic table, I'm like, holy shit, I could die in the next hour. And then you start thinking, I've not done all these things. I need to live more. So every night I go to bed, this can be a bit much for some people as a stoic belief is that I actually meditate on my own death. So when I go to bed at night, I do a meditation that's basically that I won't wake up in the morning. Not everyone's ready for that, and I understand. But what you do when you wake up in the morning, you feel amazing. Because you're like, you know what? I survived the night. I'm still alive. I put my feet on the floor. And you don't even have to say your gratitude because the fact that you meditate on your death the night before is so impactful in the way you live the next day with like a beginner's eye notice the birds you see the trees yeah you know you're not just out riding your bike looking at your power meter you're noticing everything about it you're in the presence unbelievable you know what i mean if you could see the world from those sets of eyes every day i think you can i just think that people have a different perspective i do totally agree with you dave in terms of it might not be the true essence of being really present i suppose in life and understanding it you've got to go through that deep deep trauma to be able to come out to fully justify it but i think the way the world is now and the neuroscience and everything else we're learning about it and you know you're clearly really well educated really well read but also you practice it that's the thing that's coming across to me you see a lot of people that read their self-help books or you know they'll do a course online but you ask them what it means to them and they can't translate it. and i think 
Were you hinting at that when you were saying some gurus sort of know the language, but they can't make sense of it? That's what I sort of seen. You know, you often see values written on walls, but you don't see people actually living by those values. You know, it's quite a challenging thing to know your philosophy. My philosophy is to live where my feet are. And my purpose in life is to try and share my experiences to make the world a better place. I'm very clear on that. It didn't just come to me. It took a lot of work to realize that. And when you hear people and they'll read all these books and they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm reading the guide of stoicism and I'm doing all these things. But yet the way they're acting and their behaviors wouldn't align with what I would consider what they're reading. And I think it's very easy to intellectualize something. It's a whole other game to actually apply it and live your life by that. And that's hard because none of us are really fully aware of our thoughts and feelings that create our emotions and in our behaviors. And I think we struggle as a society to work on the pause between stimulus and response. I guess the word mindfulness or focused attention comes in. And ultimately, I think we can learn as a being in high performance is that why don't we develop the human first and the athlete second? Why is the focus on developing champion athletes but not champion humans? If you develop the human, the athlete will take care of itself. That's something that I've learned from the hospital bed and listening to people like George Mumford, the mindful athletes, um, all these different people that I've sort of absorbed myself in over the last six years just to try and really help with paralysis and not just paralysis the constant scan every six months since i was paralyzed in 2016 i've gone through another two surgeries and seven weeks of radiotherapy so to deal with all of that i realized that i could read all these books but if i ain't actually applying this stuff in my life and it's a complete waste of time and i'm only then lying to myself so I truly believe if part of my purpose is to share this stuff and really try and impact people's lives, then I would be false to myself if I actually ain't living it myself. So my goal around all of this has been like, okay, how do I develop David Smith? And who is David Smith? And Steve Peters really set this off on me because Steve Peters said to me, who is David Smith? And the first thing I said to him was, oh, he's an athlete. And Steve Peters was like, no, he's not. He's like, go and work out who David Smith is. And then he's like, come back to me. And I know you've worked with Steve, Ed, and he inspired you into this world of mindset as well. And that was a very thought-provoking question for me. Yeah, no, it really is. And yeah, like I said, I'd say this to Phil a lot, you know, working with Steve back in the day, British cycling was what triggered my interest in human performance. And you've come out with some absolute pearlers there, Dave, honestly. You know, working with the human, the athlete will follow. I think all three of us are on the same page. This is what I'm loving about it. These are the conversations Ed and I have. You know, we were in Middlesbrough last week delivering a training course, ironically, to the NHS, and there was four anaesthetists on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they're on the other end of that, and they're fully aware of the responsibility in their hands, you know, and that's a different conversation, Ed, wasn't it? And we had some oh, yeah. really good in-depth conversations about their responsibility, but I want to come back to this lesson here around be athlete-centred. Well, actually, let's draw it back. Let's be human-centred. Mm. I think organisations really need to grasp it because there's been a big shift since COVID that people mm. want an organization, a team that's going to value them and is going to develop them and is going to sort of invest in their future. Because when you're human-centered and you're trying to get people to be working at a level they're happy at, I don't really get into this, be the best version of yourself. Just be happy and be content and understand yourself. You will naturally perform better anyway because you'll be engaged in everything you're doing. So I think for organizations to take that lesson around, it's not about the spreadsheet, it's not about the numbers, it's not the profits, it's not the dividends to the shareholders. Be person-centered, and those numbers will take care of themselves. And going back from my view, we had this conversation when we did a talk at the cafe a couple of weeks ago, and I went, if British Cycling, for example, were athlete-centered or human-centered, 
it's a no-brainer because you're creating better humans that even if they don't make the 1% that gets to the Olympics, they're going to be better to society. They're going to go on and have good careers as potential coaches or have a career in another industry. You're preparing them for all walks of life. I can see you nodding there, Dave. I love this stuff, and I think it's something that we should maybe not rely on schools to do this, but this is maybe something we should do with like academy players and academy members and the team when they first come in. What are your character strengths? You know, maybe dipping into the world of positive psychology a little bit so they understand positive emotions and flow states and how that helps them function in a high-performance world. You know, ultimately, high-performance has been in the moment and being present and being able to get into that state. But if you're in a mindset, you can't get into a flow state. There's too many blockages there. And also understanding this intrinsic motivation that an athlete wants to win. So how do we nurture that winning mindset? And how do we create robust athletes? I've just finished my master's in psychology. And one of the alarming things was around the mental health and sport and how NGDs have actually not really signed up to the charter in mental health. And still the focus is around winning. That scares me because every athlete I've ever met in my life wants to win. And where I really worry about it, it's not the guys that win, but it's how you win. But also it's the guys who are leaving the program and you know, they're suffering from depression, they're lost, but they don't know who they are because they only identified with being that athlete. And that's something that really sparked my curiosity when I was paralyzed. And even when I was in radiotherapy, I met so many interesting people in radiotherapy. And again, we don't know if we're going to be diagnosed with cancer. We don't know if we're going to have a spinal cord injury. And surely the one thing that sport could teach us is to be more resilient, have good character qualities, and a better person in society. But ultimately what that gives you is that gives you a toolkit. I guess if the shit hits the fan and you're told that you've got two months to live, you have the toolkit. Now, I'm not saying it's sports responsibility to make people more robust in society, but I think that the more we develop the human, then... We're going to make better athletes. It really is a no-brainer where that's in business and sport. And I think what the problem is, is that maybe people don't really understand what developing the human is. You know, they don't really get what it is. And they're maybe a little bit scared to put up their hands and say, you know what, I don't really understand that. I need some help because people don't want to show vulnerability because they're scared of what that might open. For me, the true strength lies in being vulnerable. Like I've seen in hospital, very strong characters break and be in tears because they told they only have two months to live. It's okay to show that emotion. That is an emotion that's okay. How do we work with that emotion? I am here for you. And it's not saying that we're going to create a bunch of bubbling wimps that are all soft. You end up in sport because you're a certain person. And then it's like, okay, how do we nurture this person to make them more robust as a human being? And then we create a better environment. You know, I'm not going to call anyone out on this, but we're not winning in sport in the UK at doing this at the moment. We're super successful. We deliver medal after medal after medal. And maybe that's masking some of the underlying things. Okay, some guys come out of the program and they're amazing. And then other guys come out and they struggle. I don't know Brad, but he made it very public that he struggled mentally. And, you know, if that was something that had been identified at a young age, let's just introduce some of the positive psychology stuff around flourishing, around character strengths, around values, guiding principles. So when that athlete goes through his whole career, he has an understanding of working on that pause between stimulus and response. Yeah. Because more often than not, there's not a gap between stimulus and response. It's all an emotional response. And therefore we pick up those negative habits. It's only those moments of reflection, pausing, and then making a conscious effort to do something different. Do we then start building our belief system that we can do something different to get a different result? It's almost like false entrapment sometimes, but 
so many questions again. The first one is you talk about living by your values and living by your philosophy. Do you mind sharing those with us? Yeah, so actually my top character strength in the VIA was humour. And I think that came around being impossible because we all know when it's crap, humour can be good. And oh. what I learned about my strengths of humour, gratitude, hope, optimism, and appreciation of beauty, which is not beauty as in like I'm looking beautiful, but appreciation of the world and nature and moving my body. And for me, because I lost that function to move and that function to breathe fresh air, I realized how important they are to me. And I thought, okay, I'm not just going to write these down on a wall and not live them, but actually I'm going to try and live them every single day when I wake up and be aware of them. And the more I worked on meditation, and I always hear people saying, oh, I can't meditate, I can't, I don't have time to do it. And I'm like, surely you have the time to invest in yourself. The gold standard is 20 minutes a day, but if you can only do two minutes a day, that's fantastic. And I remember hearing a lecture from Michael Gervais and he said, can you link 10 breaths together like your life depended on it? And I said, yeah, I can do that easy. I closed my eyes and I got to three breaths before my mind was thinking of all this crazy stuff. And I was like, wow, I can't do that. No wonder my pause is not there. So then I started working on that as hard as I was working on the bike or on the rowing machine or whatever I was doing. And the philosophy behind it was literally just so I can have a better life a quality of life where I can go into society, I can contribute to society, I can be a better human. I'm not the guy at the traffic lights peeping his horn and sticking his finger up and shouting abusives. I'm the calm guy who's in control of his emotions and can actually be with people and actually be with them and be like, hey, you know what? I get what you're going through. You know, can I help you? And again, I'm not wanting everyone to be soft wimps. It's more about just being aware of what your values are. And again, I sat down and I worked on this. I took pen to paper and I wrote down what means stuff to me, like gratitude, you know, a sense of belonging, my health. All these things were values. Because some people, when you say values and philosophy, people are like, what is that? And we all have it. It's our guiding principles. It's why we do the things we do. We're just maybe not always aware of them. To give you an idea, actually, I wrote 120,000 words. So that's why when you ask me on the spot, it's sometimes hard for me to pull it all back because I wrote 120,000 words during the first lockdown. Did you go through a process of prioritizing those though? So, you know, you've got stronger ones that are at the top end and then you've got all these like supporting ones underneath. I took the VIA character test strength, which was developed I think, by like selling these guys in America. And it gives you 25 strengths and doesn't look at weaknesses. And even the strength that's 25th in me is prudence. It's not saying it's a weakness, it's just a strength I don't use every day. And what I realized from those 25 strengths, I was like, okay, where do I use these in my daily life? And then how do I use some of the strengths that are maybe down in the 20s and the 15s? And to be honest with you, that test took me 20 minutes and it really changed my life because I really started to see, okay, how do I bring these strengths into every day, into situations I'm in, so I'm more socially aware of my situation. So when the guy in the bed next to me is told, hey, you have two months left to live, your brain tumor is so big, start tidying up your affairs and they pull the curtain back and he's looking at me. Okay, using humor at that point might not be a good strength to use, but using some compassion and some empathy and saying, hey man, that's really bad news. You know, I'm here if you need someone to talk to and being emotionally intelligent. So doing that inner work and writing all those things down for me was just getting out of my mind so I could see the logical steps that I was taking to deal with my mortality. And it's like when people say, you know, if you're going to die, tidy up your affairs. Have you got a will in place? Have you got all these things in place? No one says, hey, what's going on between your ears? How's that coping? Again, you know, that's something that I've experienced in sport as well sometimes. You know, people 
will say, hey, you're going to do this transition out of sport. Have you got your CV in place? But not actually sit down and say, hey, how are you? How are you as a person? How are you feeling? And that's something when I wrote all these down, there is a logical list to them. And I check in daily with that sort of list. I'll sit down and read it for a little bit and be like, okay, am I living by these values? And you can feel it in your stomach when you're not living by your values because something will upset you and it'll annoy you. And I think the great thing when you start to work on your self-awareness and meditation is that you can then lean into that emotion. There's a lady called Susan David from Harvard, and she writes a lot about emotional agility. And she says, you know, don't suppress that emotion, but use the emotion as a data point of like flagging something up. Okay, why am I feeling this? Why did something trigger this emotion in me? And then go back and address that situation or whatever that may be. And that's been a huge help to me when I step out into public and people might stare at me or there's been times where I've wet myself. My biggest anxiety about going out and riding the bike is that I actually soil myself because I have no control over that. So I've had to really manage that and think, okay, what's the worst case scenario here? I soil myself and the guy riding with me has got to put up with the smell for a while. But trying to get society to get on that same page is really challenging because people judge you and people look at you and think, what's wrong with this guy? Why has he peed himself in Tesco? And they start to treat you in a very nasty way. And that's not a really fun experience. So I need to be mindful that I don't get pulled into that state of being negative and resentful. So the self-awareness stuff is huge. Yes, understanding where you're at as a human being. I mean, Ed and I have spoke for years about when he was an athlete, he was waking up in the morning. The first thing you do is check in with your body. You know, how's my back feeling? How's my legs? How's my hips? How's my head? But what we don't do is that emotional check-in of going, right, how am I feeling today? Am I in a good place? Am I in a bad place? Do I sleep well? Did I have a bad dream? Am I anxious about a meeting that's coming up today? Or whatever, you know, is playing on your mind. And then through that self-awareness, you can put some steps in place to make sure that you put yourself in a good place. And I'm sure you've heard a lot of these, but from the Conscious Leadership Group, they talk about being above the line and below the line. Where above the line, you're in a good place. You know, growth challenges an opportunity and below the line is everything's a threat. It's the same as growth mindset, fixed mindset, cause and effect, whichever side of the coin you want to look at. It can be when you're self-aware, conscious decision to snap yourself out of it. But it's only mm-hmm. when you look in the mirror. You've yeah. got to look in the mirror first and go through that journey and not like some of the things you see in there, but also yeah. go and work on them, you know? That was a discovery for me, you know, when you have the conversation with your ego and you sit down and like you say, there's a lot of things that like, yeah, I don't like that about David Smith. <laughs> you know, maybe not tell Steve Fears what I've written down here, but it's like, <laughs> I'm only lying to myself. And that was a very humbling process to go through. Coming through all of this stuff, I wouldn't say I've really changed. It's just probably brought out my strengths more than what they were before. And I'm less focused on myself and what is self. And I'm more focused on just trying to live this sort of life where I feel like I'm showing up every day. And I remember when I was diagnosed, I think it was for the fifth time, I lose count, but I remember did all these races in the 2018 season. And then they told me like your tumor is growing back again. And at that point, I actually can't deal with this. This is too much. I remember the first surgery, I think I can never go through that again. That was too hard. And then it comes again. What I'm trying to say is that you had one back surgery. Where would your mindset have gone if you had six of those surgeries? I'd have broke Dave. I'm not like you, man. <laughs> I don't think you would because I remember, you know, a couple of people saying to me over the years, I couldn't do that. And I said, you'd surprise yourself because I didn't think I could do it. And then when they told me in 2018, look, it's come back again, I was devastated. And the first thing I did was get on a plane, went to Switzerland, did this 740 kilometer cycle across the Alps in seven days. And I remember riding along one side of the cliff one day. 
And I just looked over the cliff and I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to cycle my bike off there now. And that's it. Die on my bike wow. instantly. I don't have to go through any more of this stuff. No more emotions. I literally will just cycle off here and I'm probably not going to know it. And within 30 seconds, I'll be dead. Then I was like, shit, what if I lived and just broke my back? <laughs> and I had that conversation. The reason I didn't do that is because I understand that this is not a dress rehearsal. We only have one life, depending on your beliefs, if you're a dualist, a monist, or whatever you believe around your conscious and your soul. You know, no one's really been there and come back and told us that it's this beautiful place that we get to ride our bikes every day on perfect roads. I'm pretty confident when we die, that might be it. So I rode back into the middle of the road and it's like, right, let's just get to Monaco in one piece without killing yourself and then go into hospital and face surgery number five, surgery number six, and seven weeks of radiotherapy. And when I went through the surgery five, surgery six, and then into the radiotherapy, the one thing that kept me going all the time was, I guess, the memories of cycling across the Alps, what that freedom was like on the bike. But also, when I got back onto those anesthetic tables again, and all the cables are going in, you'll remember this, Ed, and you put the anesthetic in, I remember just that momentary pause where I look around the room and think, is this the last thing I'm ever going to see again? And this is kind of why I don't like bucket lists because when people say, I've got this bucket list when I retire, you might kick the bucket before you get to go at the bucket list. I was like, live your life now. That's not saying everyone has to quit their job, but don't wait because the one thing that we don't control is time. And it's funny when you're in a sport, on the bike, you're always trying to go faster. So you're wanting time to go quicker. You know, if you're doing a three minute power test, you want that time to go really quickly. But ultimately we want time to go slow if we're having a good life experience. We don't want it to go fast. We want to almost slow it down and pause it. And man, when you walk to anesthetic and you think, wow, I could literally die here. I don't want to go yet. I love life. And that for me is a great place to have got into with all of this, but it's taken a lot and gone through a lot and probably seen a lot of death for me to really fully appreciate what life is. Dev, you said that one of your top values was humour. Have you got like a really dark sense of humour now? Gallows humour, you know, that whatever happens, I'll find humour in it. A little bit. I guess it's changing room banter, isn't it, really? Yeah. You know, it's been with your mates, been with the lads, you know, obviously there's the Ed Clancy or Mark Cavendish who stands and does the interview on TV, but there's also the Ed Clancy and Mark Cavendish or Bradley Wings or any of these guys when it's really horrible and you're slogging on some training ride and you hate life, someone says something funny and all of a sudden everyone's spirits pick up, they get a real release of dopamine, they feel good and there's that sense of camaraderie. That's what I love about sport. You're kicking around with your mates, either riding your bike or kicking a ball through your pals, you're having a great time and you know at that point nothing else really matters. I think that's cool. And even in the heat of an Olympic final. Yeah, yeah, there's always something that goes off. It's something usually unspeakable that we can never mention on air, but... No, well, that's the thing, yeah, you can never mention <laughs> that. But that happened in the spinal hospital. Some people seen what we were doing in there. So I had a guy in the bed next to me, Frank. He was a great guy, war vet, and gone through life. Nothing ever happened to him. We sat at a set of traffic lights. Somebody crashed into him and he broke his neck. He was pretty much paralyzed from the neck down. And, you know, we used to sit Mars bars on his chest and he couldn't get to the Mars bar. And we'd all sit in the bed eating and we'd be like, hey, Frank, you know, this is the best diet for you, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, if someone had walked in, they would say that's abuse. But yeah. at that moment in time, it was kind of like a bunch of lads coming together yeah. just to get through a really hard situation. 
and there's a lot of research and data out there that's been done on like Navy SEAL training through buds and stuff where that stuff actually works. When everyone thinks, you know what, I can't go on anymore, I'm going to quit. Someone just says something to break the tension and all of a sudden it sort of resets everything. Like every morning the nurse would come and do the suppositories and I had a bed, you had an army guy on one side or an extra rugby player on another side. The nurse would come in and the joke was always like, oh, I hope she's got thin fingers today and not big hands. <laughs> and I was just grateful that I didn't need suppositories. So I used to hear these grown men every morning going, ah! <laughs> and that was the alarm clock at five o'clock in the morning. They'd all had their suppositories put in. It was like a bit of a running joke. And, you know, when you're in the spinal hospital and you get hoisted up, you automatically open your bowels sometimes. And there's always like the new boy who comes and it's like the first day at school. And someone would be like, oh, the new guy, he soiled himself the day in the gym. And, you know, it's really embarrassing for him. He's this big, tough guy. He's been brought in and they hoist him from his wheelchair to the physio bed. And the first thing he does is shit himself and it stinks and they've got to clean him and take his nappy off and all that stuff. I mean, it's really degrading and you lose a lot of your pride. It's not an easy situation to go through, but it's amazing how this sort of dark humor comes in to pull you through it. And even now when I sit with my mates, we joke about stuff around bowel, bladder, sexual function. He and myself, me and Steve Bates, shared a great story when I was going to meet Steve Bates in Mallorca and we'd met at this petrol station. I actually shot myself on the way over the call. So it was stinking. And I cycled all the way down into this little petrol station, seeing Steve, and I was like, mate, I can't stop. And I was standing in the petrol station with only my cycling shoes on, nothing else, trying to wash my shorts under this thing. <laughs> and some Spaniard comes walking in and I'm stood there oh. naked. And I was just like, yeah, that's marginal gains. This is what British life <laughs> You know, me and Steve always joke about that. In the harsh reality, you're just taking a pretty hard situation and you're bringing humor to it, which just lightens this serious topic when you're talking about dying tumors and paralysis. And, you know, I always try to bring humor to it. And certainly when I do talks and stuff, I always try to see the lighter side of it. You know, laughing is part of the human spirit and enjoying life. And there's no point walking around going, why me? This is shit. I'm going to bring my negativity to the world and pull everyone down to where I am. That's not who I want to be. Oh, you're 100% not that, that's for sure. And there was jokes going around in my mind that probably aren't appropriate right now. But um, the boys and girls coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, obviously there was a big piece of work around not only their physical and their psychological support, but it was around this PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder. And Therefore, understanding with the research now that there's an opportunity for post-traumatic growth. The question around the former one, if you like, Dave, is post-traumatic stress, et cetera. You've had so many traumatic events. How dark did it get? I mean, you obviously touched on thinking about riding a bike over the cliff. How dark did it get for you, mate? The whole time I wasn't paralyzed, I don't think it ever got dark because I always had goals. Every time I had the surgery, I woke up, there was like a temporary paralysis I could move. And I always had that, that athlete's mindset, like, this is my goals, here's the process, the performance goals, outcome goals, and I was just driven to get out of this hospital bed to walk. When I was paralyzed, that got dark, not initially in the first eight weeks. In the first eight weeks, I thought I was going to recover because the doctors told me, look, you're going to recover. So I held on to this sort of level of optimism that wasn't realistic optimism. It wasn't measured optimism. It was like a exaggerated level of optimism. And I think the danger there was is that that was only going to crash. And I know in Franco's book and also in Stockdale's book, we spoke about the people in the prisoner of war camps who were really over-optimistic. They were the ones who actually died rather than the ones who were, had this measured realism. And for me, because I had this super level of optimism, I'd recovered before, I'd always made it back. The same was going to happen. 
when I got into the spinal cord hospital and I started to pick up the energy of everyone else and the reality of the situation started to hit, I was like, whoa, I went to the first meeting and they said, what's your goals? And I said, look, I want to ride for Great Britain again and I want to cycle the Alps. And they were saying, well, let's just try and brush your feet. And I was like, I'm in a really bad way here. And I hadn't really seen a mirror. And I remember looking in the mirror thinking, who's that guy? Literally, I've wasted away just a mess. And I could start to dive down. And people would come and visit me. And then they would leave me. And I couldn't go. And I was really struggling. And then I found myself, when I discharged from there, I went to a private medical center. And I was living in a hotel in Crawley on my own. And I'm a real people person. I love people. And I wasn't seeing anybody bar spinal cord injury people. But then I started to get this like survivor's guilt because every day I was going to rehab, I was going to rehab with people who were worse off than me. So I was arriving at rehab. I was doing five, six hours a day of rehab and going back to a hotel room and just sitting on my own. And whilst in the hotel room, I used to start to think, why am I feeling bad? Because I've got my right arm and my right leg. I shouldn't be feeling bad. I'm still alive. People were dying around me. People were in a real bad way. So then I started to feel really bad about feeling bad which was crazy, then that spiraled completely out of control. I then found myself midway through 2017, I'd got out of hospital, I'd got out of all the rehabilitation, trying to integrate into society. Then I was like, well, what's my why? What purpose do I have? I'm not trying to compete in sport. I'm this disabled guy wandering around London with a walking stick and an arm in a sling with people bumping into me. I had people threatening to beat me up. I was actually attacked in London as a disabled person. Now, I'm not a fighter, but I'd gone from a guy who spent his best part of his life scrapping on dojos, and I worked as a doorman for six years, so I could handle myself. And at the height of my career in boxing, I was 110 kilos. I was a big lad. And now, all of a sudden, I'm this disabled guy who can't stand up straight, and people are threatening to beat me up in London. So I'd come home, and I'd be sitting in my house crying. Then I'd get invited to dinners. I'd do a motivational speech and have all the high of you're an inspiration, you're this, you're that, which was all great. Then I'd get on the train, go home and sit and cry for two hours because I'd be looking in the mirror. It was horrible. I didn't want to be this person. I was trapped in this body I didn't want. At that point, I sat looking at the kitchen knives and I was like, bollocks, I'm just going to kill myself. Like, what's the point in this? And then I was looking at people who were doing all these amazing things with just their heads. You know, like Matt Hansen, the guys doing water paintings, you know, all these people. And I was like, Jesus, I can't be feeling bad. They're all paralyzed from the neck down. And that made me feel even worse because I was then comparing myself to others. And then I was obviously looking and speaking to my mates on the team who were all like, yeah, we won these medals. Everything's great. And then I was like, this is shit. <laughs> so I just started going down and down and down. And eventually I fell over in the shower one morning and I just lay there in tears and I couldn't get up. I was like, please die please die, I want to die. And I kind of pulled myself together. And I can't remember exactly what point it was, but I just remember picking up the phone to British Cycling and saying, hey, you know, I think I can get on a bike and I'd love to get on a bike. And you know, a lot of people say negative things about cycling, you know, they could have kicked me off the team at any point and they supported me through all those tumors. And I'm forever grateful for that, especially in a sport that's all about performance and winning. I wasn't winning for them. And they're like, up you come. They lifted me onto a track bike and I rode around the velodrome and then I raced in November in a pursuit. I don't even know how I managed to do it. And it was that just getting purpose back in my life that I guess stopped me. And that 2016, 2017 was honestly horrendous. I've never been in such a horrible place. I had trolls on the internet 
who were sending me messages telling me to die, telling me to commit suicide, a whole host of stuff. It was just in days. When was this? Is this post 2018? No, 2017. When I came out of hospital, they were telling me to die. 2016 and 2017 were just really shit. And it was just horrible. And then in 2018, I got back into cycling. I was going to races. I raced the world champs. Everything was amazing. And then I got hit again with another diagnosis. What the 2017 thing did to me when I was at rock bottom, it made me go to therapy. It made me talk. It made me get help. And that was a really key thing that I did. I went and got the help and I did all the therapy. I did all the inner work. So when 2018 came around and I got diagnosed again, okay, it wasn't great, but I felt like I was in a better place mentally to deal with it. And again, the team stood behind me and they were like, you know, go have another surgery. I think my surgeries became like Olympic Games almost. If I lived, I had won a gold medal. You know, that became my winning really in my race. And that was hard to accept because ultimately I'm not the athlete that Ed is. I never will be and could never put out those sort of numbers. But I have the same mindset. You know, I still wanted to win and win at my level and what a pursuit time for me was. And what was really frustrating is I just never got that chance. And that kind of really frustrated me. And part of me, I don't know if I can ever really let that go. You know, I'm still wanting to race this year albeit as a recreational athlete, but there's definitely a little part inside my mind that's just like, oh, you know, how many watts can you put out now? Dave, your mental health and your mental ability is just textbook, isn't it? This is something we spoke about with Steve way over a decade ago. And it's something I speak with Phil about, and you've kind of alluded to it a couple of times early today, but, you know, if you want to be physically fit, you've got to work on it, right? You've got to get down the gym, you've got to exercise. And if you want to be mentally fit, mentally strong, have the ability to be resistant to terrible things, you've got to work on that too, right? I guess my question is, how elastic is it? How much can people change? How much more resilient can the average person become, you know, if they spend time on it? I think everyone can know there's a lot of research out there that shows brain development. Andrew Huberman from Stanford talks really well around this subject. And, you know, it's from the age of zero to seven, I guess, we're programmed. Our brain doesn't really fully mature to the age of 25. And then after that, neuroplasticity is very challenging. So up until the age of 25, the brain is very plastic. We can mold it. And that's why I often say if we can train athletes at a young age to become better humans and train the human, they're very plastic at that age. They might start going, oh, I'm not, you know, this is all very fairy stuff. But if you market and smell it in the right way, then you can really have an influence over a young athlete's head. Now, if we're sort of talking around people after the age of 25, neuroplasticity is definitely a lot more challenging, mm. but it can happen. It yeah. just takes the work. And this is the thing. This work is hard because your return on investment is not so visual. It's not like you're going to hit bigger power numbers. It's not like your VO2 max has jumped. So you feel it. You're not already suddenly going faster in a time trial or producing better results in the company. You can't really measure it. You know, there's no real measure number on it. All I noticed is the more I did the work, the longer that pause came. And that was my measurement. I was like, okay, I'm not being reactive now. I'm being more responsive. And things are not frustrating me as much. I'm more in tune with my emotions. And that was my return on investment. I was like, wow, I've started to notice this. Now, there was times where I was meditating an hour a day. And I realized that meditation and mindfulness wasn't trying to clear the mind because no one can clear the mind. You know, I don't even, maybe there's some grandmaster in Tibet who can clear his mind, but I don't know anyone that can clear their mind. And this is where it gets a little bit misconstrued in the guru world and all these influencers telling you all these great things. But 
actually, you know, for me, mindfulness and meditation and doing the inner work is literally sitting with yourself and leaning into those emotions, learning what that emotions and minds are saying. And then I identify, okay, I'm in a really bad place. So who do I go to? Do I pick up the phone to Steve? Do I pick up the phone to someone else? What's this emotion telling me? Or nine times out of 10, it's actually telling me I'm in a great place. Let's go and attack the day. And what I started to realize as well is that sometimes I think we have it around the wrong way is that we try to influence thoughts, feelings, and emotions to influence our actions. But actually, if we just act, it has a bigger impact on our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. So by simply just doing it, Andrew Huberman talks about limbic resistance. So that resistance in your mind where you don't want to go out on the bike and you make all these excuses. Steve uses it as the chimp discussing to us, you know, oh, let's just stay in bed a little bit longer. But actually, if you can get going and get the body moving, the rush of endorphins and neurotransmitters in the brain, you know yourself, when you go out and ride, you come back, you just feel great and it sets you up for the rest of the day. And that is one thing I try to do. I try to own my mornings. I try to get up in the morning, 90 minutes of uninterrupted flow state work, whether that's writing, studying, or a gym, getting out in fresh air, seeing direct sunlight. All of these things are really important when we start to talk about brain plasticity. And I think if we look at brain plasticity solely as trying to cognitively influence the brain, then I think it's too difficult and it might take 100 years. People like things quickly. So I always say to people, well, you know, let's look at how you're sleeping, what you're putting in your mouth, but really what are you doing in the first two hours of your morning? And I think the danger is, is that we all wake up in the morning and the first thing we do is turn this on. And for me, that's a disaster for brain plasticity, for mental health, for everything. If you can create a habit and, you know, habits, there's tons of research. It might be 20 days to 200 days. That's very specific to somebody's neurochemistry within the brain. Like I don't take the phones in the bedrooms now. It's a little bit harder in a hotel room, but they're banned from the bedroom. And I make sure when I get up in the morning, I've got that routine and I just stick to it. And there is limbic resistance. There is days where I'm like, I know what, let's just check Instagram. Let's just have a conversation with somebody. And then I just feel my energy drop and I feel pretty crap. Where if I'm like, you know what? Right, David, let's get up. Before you even leave your bed, let's do five minutes of mindful breathing. So if you're someone who hits the snooze alarm, I wouldn't tell you not to hit the snooze alarm. I'd say, what do you do between the eight minutes of the snooze alarm? That's a perfect time just to sit and connect to your breathing. And you just sit there and breathe, do nasal breathing. The mouth is made for talking, kissing, and and eating. It's not really made for breathing. So learn how to nasal breathe. Learn how to control the autonomic nervous system. Before you've even got out of bed, you've already done eight minutes of inner work. So And then you get out of bed, get the body moving, and it sets you up for the day. And you know what? When people turn around and go, yeah, that sounds like hard work, and I don't have the time for that. (laughs) When you're lying in your hospital bed at 50 because you've had a stroke, you'll wish you'll have done the work. And for me, that's what I was trying to say to people. We've got this collective experience from sport, but I'm like, okay, that can teach us a lot. But when you're lying on that hospital bed, fighting for your life, it's like, oh shit, I wish I'd done the inner work. I wish I'd done all these other things. Okay, there's a genetic factor to it, but actually going back to your question, anyone can shape the brain. You just need to find your motivation, find your why you want to do it. And the days that you struggle, always go back to that why. And that should be powerful enough. And even if it's just to say, I want to see my kids grow old, that's a pretty powerful why you should go and do your exercise. I think the line you've said a couple of times is, you know, a lot of people say they're too busy to do something. More often than not, they're the ones that need it the most. You know, they're a little bit disconnected, a little bit overwhelmed and on the verge of burnout, you know. And if you don't make time, 
to rest and recover and recharge and connect. The world has a way of making time for you. We're forcing it. <laughs> and it's hard. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's really hard to meditate for 20 minutes. People are agitated. People like to move. So if you're one of the people who can't sit still for 20 minutes, that's why sport is so great because it drops you into these flow states. But I seen something the other day in America, and it was a primary school who teach mindfulness and meditation and emotional intelligence in a primary school. Yeah. I was like, wow. And they said, every kid who starts the school at age of four, the first thing you do in the morning is a 20 meditation before class starts. And then the last thing you do at the end of the day is a 20 minute meditation. This is something we used to do in martial arts all the time. We'd go into the dojo for the first 10 minutes of training. We would do this mock soul, which was just sit kneeling down and connecting to your breath. I didn't know what it was at seven year old. I had no idea. I just knew I shut my eyes and breathed with everyone in the dojo. And then you would basically then proceed to do your training, whether that's community, kata, basics. And at the end of the session, before you leave the dojo, you did another meditation. And I did that. I was doing karate six times a week. So I actually, without even knowing it, I was actually been meditating since the age of seven. You know, that's maybe something we never do in high performance sport. You know, think about if you were coming to the velodrome and the first thing you all did is you just sat and connected to your breath for 10 minutes and you weren't allowed to speak. You weren't allowed to do anything. You just sat and connected to your breath. That would not go down well. I'd love to see Charlie Tanfield and Ethan Hayter buy into that. No chance, no chance. But you know what? So here's an interesting thing. I was chatting to my friend who's a ski coach about this. You know, when you look at what the Chicago Bulls did and what Michael Jordan did, what Kobe did, all the top guys in the world do it. No way. And my philosophy is if you want to be the world's best, then you will look at every single thing with a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset. And if you're telling me by connecting to my breath for 10 minutes a day that I'm going to have better autonomic system control and arousal states, which improves my recovery, which also then improves my arousal states in a race and pre-race, then I'm going to do that. And that's an area, like we said earlier on, that you said you train the physical specimen, but are we fully training? Because I think psychology is misinterpreted, in my opinion, in British sport. They're never really there. They sit in a room, you don't see them. And if something's wrong, you go and talk to the site. In my thoughts, the site should be in track center every day. Like learning the sport, learning the athletes, talking to them, just dropping little seeds in their mind. If they see someone who's getting a little bit anxious and having a high arousal state, say, you know what, okay, here's how you connect to your breath, bring the arousal state down. If special forces do it, then I'm sure it's good enough for the athletes. And I always say, you know, there's a great group, Jordan, I think is his name. He was brought into Chicago Bulls to be their mindfulness coach. I think going into that, into an NBA team, you know, saying, hey, guys, you've got to sit down and shut your eyes. Yeah, yeah. The All Blacks rugby, they have a mind coach. They're normally ex-players that have, you know, obviously a bit into their personal development, et cetera. And they're walking around and they can just pick up on what's happening, especially with the younger players coming through. And they're there to support them. And that's how they employ some of them in terms of playing a part. Because in the older days, you know, when you're on your debut and you're absolutely chewing yourself up inside, you're using all that emotional energy. You're actually increasing your chances of failing rather than successful in your first big race. Imagine having that mentor around there, you know, that's been there and done it, knows what to say, they get you, they connect with you, they understand. It's the biggest challenge with any organisation is that people become a little bit protective. They're driven by ego a little bit and protecting their own legacy. And, they're from that below the line where imagine if it doesn't happen, we're going to look like a right arse. Mm. I think in cycling, especially, a lot of people are riding the same bikes. Skin suits are very yeah. similar, helmets, yeah, yeah. glasses, spend millions of pounds on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we don't work to get the best out of the athlete. Yeah. And that, for me, what I learned when I went to anaesthetic, it was controlling that autonomic state. 
So it's recognizing when you're in a state, but recognizing how you got into that state in the first place. Because if you don't even know how you got into that state, how can you manage that state? So if that's pre-performance anxiety, that little voice in your head saying you're not good enough, you've got to be an inch from that back wheel, but you're not good enough. You don't put enough watts out to get onto the back of that guy again. Or you're the sixth guy in the team pursuit and you're thinking, yeah, I'm not good enough. And that little inner critic, that can start to move your autonomic nervous system and change your states. And it's how do you manage that? And where it really struck for me was when I came around my first surgery, I had no clue really to do all this stuff. And I woke up and I thought I'd been in the boxing room with Mike Tyson. I remember waking up from the surgery trying to punch the nurses. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? And then when I went for my third, fourth, fifth, sixth surgery, I meditated into the surgeries because I became fascinated around the brain. And I was like, what happens to the conscious brain whilst you're under anesthetic? And I know they use a drug that basically knocks out consciousness and it's more reflective to being in a coma than a deep sleep. But your subconscious is still functioning. So as your body's being cut open, is it a part of the brain from the central nervous system in the brainstem up to the brain, up to the emotional centers that knows that you're being cut open? And what is that doing? Wow. So when I started to realize that, I was like, okay, how do I best prepare my mind for this ultimate performance because you're trying to stay alive to give myself the best chance under anesthetic that's under no control from the surgeons. It's purely down. Okay, there's no consciousness there because that's knocked out. But there is a subconscious and the conversation I'm having to myself from walking from the ward to the anesthetic room, what is that conversation? And this is what fascinates me as well, because not many athletes will tell you, you know, what's the conversation in Ed's mind from the minute he's done his warm up, from sitting on the chair to getting on the bike? What's he saying in his mind? That really fascinates me. Where my mind went then was creating that alignment between the conscious and the subconscious, because, you know, the old adages are the conscious brain is what you can logically and rationally utilize to create your goals. You know, your conscious brain is your goal setter, and then your subconscious is your goal getter. When you get those alignments between what you're trying to achieve and how you're going to get there, that is super powerful. And once you use that as a base level, that's when we're going to start experiencing that flow state again, when we've got every other set of alignment coming into our nervous system. It's a fascinating conversation. Dave, I can't believe we've been chatting for so long already. I want to finish off with some more positivity, more inspiration. What's next, Dave? What's on the agenda? What's on the horizon? Obviously, your priority is to be happy and to be grounded every day and just to yeah. be, I suppose, content with being alive. But I yeah. get a sense you've got some goals and you've got something coming yeah. up. I don't know what it is, well, I, but I can I sense it. <laughs> yeah, I, I do, I do. I don't want to show up to my day and be like, you know what, I didn't smash it. And whatever that is to me is, is different. I'm literally starting my dissertation for my master's tomorrow. And the professor also spoke to me about maybe going to pursue a PhD. I left school with one standard grade. I had no education, so the thought of being a PhD is like, well, okay, that's quite overwhelming, but I would love to think I could apply myself to do that. And so I think that's definitely a goal is get through the dissertation and then maybe look at the PhD program. And I want to cycle. I want to race this year. I'm going to race. I don't know if this is even smart. I entered the Grand Fondo in the Alps, 3rd of July, which is 180 kilometers, and it finishes in Alpe d'Huez. I've entered that for July. You know, and just keep living by my values, targeting these goals and trying to remind myself to be present, be in the moment, you know, and try and make a change to the world. And ultimately, I want to race nationals. I would quite like to go and do some World Cups just as an independent rider. I'm very, very lucky that Nike sponsor me. 
I have an ability to live and I can then focus on doing a PhD and I can focus on my training without that support from Nike, then I would for sure struggle because I wouldn't have any income. So that takes a huge weight off my mind. I can then actually focus on sleep hygiene. I can focus on the academia, but I can also focus on being the best athlete I can be. For me, that is really, really important. Like I know I'm never going to go to another games. It's unrealistic for me to even try and hold on to that, but I can still compete. I can still race. I can still do time trials just because I love it. And I remember actually a few months ago, I sat at dinner with Mark and he had just been badly busted up in the race but then also at his house the people had come in and beat him up i didn't know that but we were just chatting away and i never spoke to him about trying to eclipse any merch records or anything i was just like how great is it just to ride a bike it's just good fun and we were both just chatting about how it's just good fun to ride and to race and if you enjoy it you keep doing it and obviously if you're good enough to pick for things that's great so going into this season and next season if i can stay tumor free which is the biggest thing then I'll just make most of the gift that I'm given, which is living, and that's hopefully going to be on two wheels. Unbelievable. I think there's so many golden nuggets in that conversation with you, Dave. Is there one sort of thing that's at the top of your mind that you would share with the listeners that are going, right, if there's one thing you need to be mindful of, what's your number one takeaway? Yeah. Thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and your triggers around them, and using emotions as a point of data reference. That's amazing. Because, again, it speaks to that bit where the beauty of self-awareness is the more you become aware of self, you start becoming more aware of others. It's a win-win for everybody. And then your relationships get better, less drama, etc. And be compassionate. Be compassionate to yourself and others. That's ultimately, in my philosophy, is really key to show compassion for yourself and for our fellow humans who are all just trying to live the human experience. And ultimately, what I realized when I was in Jamaica, that everyone is just trying to build their own little home and do their own little thing whether you're the rascal living in the mountains, building your shack, or you're the multimillionaire in the city trying to build an extension. Everyone's just trying to build that little home and live their little human experience. Yeah, the fundamentals. And talk about being compassionate. You know, Ed has told me the story about when you met at the track many, many years ago that he's told me that a few times, mate. So you certainly live those values as well and you have done for a long time. But thanks ever so much for your time Dave it's been fascinating I could carry on having this conversation for hours on end and I really appreciate your candor and your honesty cheers Dave and actually you know what you're quite well known out here Ed there's a big cycling community in Jamaica oh yeah <laughs> and I was talking to the national coach he's like what are you doing tomorrow you know and I was like oh, I'm gonna podcast with Phil and Ed Clancy and he's like the Ed Clancy because <laughs> like, yeah, like, oh, there's a velodrome here and they love their cycling actually a little Pop trivia, the only other Olympic medal that Jamaica have is actually on the velodrome. Ah, no way. Well, I got a little suit line trip coming up. No, I'll have, we'll have to make a little visit out there at some point, Dave. Yeah, you know what? You're more than welcome anytime, man. But honestly, like, I say this to everyone I meet, like, I love over here. I know a lot of people here now. And... I'm not sun cream, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you nice burn. Nah, good on you. But probably nah. closer to that, Dave. You're going to have to let us know when you're back. It sounds like we need to meet up for a coffee and a spin, I reckon, mate. Absolutely, yeah. guys. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Uh, good man, Dave. That was ace, honestly. I think at some point you said, in one of your purpose now, share your experiences to make the world a better place for what it's worth, mate. Yeah, proper inspiration. You've made my world a better place. So good on you, pal. Cheers, man. Thank you. Ed, where do we start with that one? <laughs> I'll tell you what, we got a good one for the first one, eh? Nah, he was mint, wasn't he? He's textbook, isn't he? The way he speaks about mindset and positive thinking. 
so much we've learned from it. I was literally writing down pages of good stuff there to take on for he's, myself. He's textbook because he knows it all, but he's lived it all. That's what I really like about it. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked a bit about that academic side of it, and sometimes it can be disconnected from the real world, you know, because it's academic. Yeah. But I think the pre-academic, that practical application of the academic work, he's walking proof of it, isn't he? Yeah, he wasn't just talking the talk, was he? You know, <laughs> you could tell he was into that, and he's walking the walk as well, wasn't he? You know, he lives by his values. He doesn't just, you know, stick him on Instagram and say, these are my values, and he really lives it, and he believes in it. And I was kind of interested myself when I asked him that question, like, how much do you think you can move mentally? How much do you think you can grow? Mm -hmm. I don't know, I guess he's a shining example of a lot. Clearly something he's worked on, and I guess that's reflected in how resilient he is, how positive he is. And what people wouldn't have heard is the conversation we had, obviously, when we stopped recording, yeah. which we chucked, spoke for another 30 minutes after that, just to <laughs> let you know. But everything was just positive and great, wasn't it? In yeah. terms of, you know, I'm in Jamaica now, and I'm surfing, and, yep. you know, meeting jerk chicken on the side of the road. And like, almost really, like, grateful and full of zest and mm. life. Absolutely. He's not messing around, is he? No. He's, he's getting on with life and, yeah, sorting himself out of a house out there and, are you just inviting us around there? No, we're going. We're going. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> nah, good on him. One of the things actually that he mentioned that really resonated with me that, again, we unhelpfully spoke about off air just then was, you know, I'm bad for this. I'll sit there thinking and thinking and thinking and getting emotional about things. And eventually, after a month or two, I'll take a bit of action. And I really like the way he sort of said, you've just got to take action. And then your thoughts and emotions will follow. Mm. For example, last week, and we spoke about it before we came in this room, how busy I was down in wind tunnels. Up in Middlesbrough, you and Pro Noxus for a two-day course, delivering a talk to the NHS. More track sessions on Thursday, triathlon meetings Friday. It was just a busy week, absolutely rammed. And it's the happiest week I've had by far since, you know, I hung it up in Tokyo, really. I just yeah. taking action. It works. And you feel like so many things come off the back of it. And that unhelpful train of thought that everyone has, that Dave spoke of, it's non-existent. Yeah. It's taking action and being proactive as well as a, but I think there's two sides of it. There's almost like risk reward. I think when there's high risk, you've got to obviously put a bit of thought pattern into it. You know, you've got to yeah. rationalize the information and assess it, prioritize it and make a decision. But I think more often than that, if it feels about right, it probably is. Just go with it. And it's understanding that, yeah, that yeah. gut feeling, you know, that the vagus nervous is called, that's sending some messages. It's a learned behavior or learned information and process. And it's going, it feels about right, you know, just I make a start. And then, yeah. you know, as we were talking about there as well, I think that in the military, there was no such thing as indecision. Like, it just wasn't allowed. Yes. You make a decision, you be decisive, and you take feedback straight away. And then you change your decision if you have to. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. the only way you get feedback is by moving forward. Yeah, if you yeah. don't move forward, you'll never know. It makes a lot of sense. How do you get over that sort of feeling when you're kind of indecisive, though? Because I end up there a lot. Well, when did you decide to be indecisive? It's a decision, isn't it? When did you decide you were indecisive? That's the thing, and I think you can process so much information at a time, but more often than not, we've got to find a way of just sort of checking our thought pattern. I've gone yeah. year ago again, going on two, three, four, five scenarios, losing myself in my thought. Yep. Not today. My priority today is I need to do X, Y, and Z. Let's get X done. And then I'm making a logical decision. Let's go. And then see what the rest of the day brings. Yeah, understood. Rather than tripping over your thought patterns and losing yourself in the old paralysis by analysis. I like it. Paralysis by analysis. Yeah, well, there's a little takeaway. Yeah. Let's be mindful. And a bit more action. Take action, get feedback, and adjust as you go. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. What a fantastic guy. If you want to look at him, he's on davesmithmb.com. And he's all over social media, especially Instagram as well, if you want that little bit of morning inspiration. Don't look at your phone too soon, though. That's what he said, anyway. See you on the next episode. Cheers, Ed. Thanks so much. Cheers, Phil. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Come and follow us on social media. Just search for Pursuit Line, your preferred platform. We're on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Interact with us and let us know your thoughts. Catch you next time.